All right, well, welcome everyone to the Truth and Democracy Coalition monthly meeting. My name is Rich Proceda. I'm the founder of the Truth and Democracy Coalition and the host of the Truth and Democracy podcast. Today, we have Dr. Susan Neiman with us who will talk about the difference about being woke versus being left. But first, uh, before we start, I want to tell you a little about the Truth and Democracy Coalition and about our upcoming events. So the Truth and Democracy Coalition was formed to build a pro-democracy movement in America. We educate the public about disinformation, teach people to be critical of the propaganda they consume, and provide critical analysis of current events and social issues. We produce media and educational materials, hold seminars and meetings, work with other organizations, and organize events and activity geared toward building a pro-democracy movement in America. The coalition seeks to build communities of people of different faiths and ideologies to defend and promote democracy locally, nationally, and globally. Now, on June 11th at 2 p.m., Rich Proceda, that's me, an early pro-feminist activist, the author of Social Issues in Global Perspective Pornography, and the leader of the Truth and Democracy Coalition, will lead a discussion about what's wrong with men. A survivor of severe sexual abuse, he will tell his story, address the problems facing men today, and talk about what needs to happen to move men back from the brink and back to sanity. So to register for that, go to tinyurl.com slash wrongwithmen. And I'm going to put these in the chat for you as well. Then on June 4th, we will start our monthly Red Pill Men's Group. Uh, men are dying. They're killing themselves with drugs and alcohol, committing suicide at far higher rates than women. They also make up the perpetual perpetrators of violence, mass shooters are mostly men, and they're turning to authoritarianism, and, and they make up a large portion of far-right extremists and mega-activists. So men have become public enemy number one, pining for a past when they had more authority. They're turning to drugs, alcohol, suicide, and authoritarianism. So to register for that, this nonpartisan men's support group, Go to tinyurl.com slash redpillmen. Then on July 16th at 2 p.m., we will have the first, our first January 6th Remembrance Event Planning Committee meeting. We're planning our annual event to remember the attempted coup and insurrection against the United States Congress. It is important to remember what happened and not let the horrendous actions of then-President Donald Trump and his extremist followers to attempt to overthrow our government and install Trump as dictator for life. In order to resist authoritarianism in America, we need to keep the events of January 6, 2021 at the forefront of people's mind as we head into the 2024 elections with Donald Trump still the front runner for the Republican nomination. So we're going to be organizing this event in Whittier and we're going to help other people organize events in their hometowns. So join us on July 16th at 2 p.m. by registering at 
tinyurl.com slash Jan 6, that's a 6th TH, 2024. And then finally, make sure to check out our YouTube page and to subscribe to our YouTube page at youtube.com slash at, and that's the at symbol, Truth and Democracy Coalition. So now let's turn to our discussion with Dr. Neiman. Dr. Neiman is a Harvard-educated American moral philosopher, cultural commentator, and SAS. Um, she has written extensively on the juncture between enlightenment, moral philosophy, metaphysics, and politics, both, both for scholarly audiences and the general public. She describes herself as a lifelong leftist and socialist and is an unlikely critic of wokeism. She argues that the tenets of the woke have become anti-theoretical to the traditional values of the left. Welcome, Dr. Neiman. I'm glad to be here. So your book, Left is Not Woke, is really a wonderful little book. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, it really makes clear the conservative underpinnings of woke ideology. So can you tell us about yourself and what motivated you to write this book? Sure, let me um, give a, the, the shortest possible version. Um, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, in the middle of the civil rights movement, in which my mother was uh, intensely involved, uh, not without some, you know, risk. Uh, we got calls from the clan that my parents didn't tell me about, but, you know, they said, we know where your children go to school, and uh, we got an eye on them and things like that. Um, something that I'm proud of and something that very clearly shaped my own views of the world. Um, first of all, they shaped my commitment to universalism uh, because we were told uh, we were a, a Jewish family. My parents were originally Yankees, so we were not particularly at home in, in the South of the 60s. Um, but we were told that this is just what Jews do. We are told in the Bible, and we read it every year at Passover, uh, you, were you were slaves in the land of Egypt, and uh, your our place is to stand with people who were slaves in the land of Georgia. Okay, and that's repeated 12 times in the Bible, not with a reference to Georgia, but you were strangers, you were slaves. Um, it's your place to stand with people who are marginalized and oppressed. And, you know, you never realize until you get older what your most important influences were, but that was certainly mine. Uh, I got caught up in the 60s. I uh, wound up at Harvard studying philosophy under the direction of John Rawls, the great theorist of justice. Um, I then went to Berlin for what was supposed to be a short stay. And uh, here and there, I've spent more of my adult life in Berlin than anywhere else. Um, I also was a philosophy professor at Yale and at Tel Aviv. But since the year 2000, I've been running uh, an interdisciplinary think public think tank called the Einstein Forum, because we're also caretakers of the only uh, house that was ever built specifically for Einstein. And I, you know, so with that background, um, I have always uh, almost taken it for granted that I, uh, you know, I stand on the left. There's a nice German um, expression, left is the side that the heart is on, okay, uh, which is true. And uh, like 
many of my friends, I was increasingly disturbed starting a couple of years ago um, about the tendency to talk about something called the woke left or the radical left or the far left, where many friends of mine uh, were having conversations with me, with themselves, saying, gosh, you know, if this is the left, I think I'm not left anymore. And my impulse was, you know, then after a while to say, no, you're left. You've been fighting for social justice all your life. Um, they're not left. And so I wrote this book to try and figure out really what the difference is between the two, uh, because I was not willing to say there's this binary opposition, either you're woke or you're reactionary. Um, <clears throat> But um, to say, look, actually, while I, I think the confusion arises because people who are woke activists are generally fired by woke emotions, but sorry, by left wing emotions, that is um, concern for people who've been marginalized and indignation for people who've been oppressed and the desire to right historical wrongs. But in fact, without their really being aware of it, they have been influenced by philosophies and theories and assumptions that are actually reactionary. They're not even conservative. They're really quite reactionary. Um, in fact, some of them were even Nazis. Now, this does not mean that every woke activist is spending their time reading Michel Foucault or uh, Carl Schmitt. Mostly they're not, unless they're academics. Okay, but these are philosophers and theorists who have gotten into the general cultural stream because it's what journalists read when they were in college. Um, it's you know what they pass on to their readers. There's an example that I use quite early in the book just to. I did not. I'll, let me um, let me make this clear. I did not want to. Um, write a book that was just a litany of woke excesses and cancel culture. Um, the only time the word cancel culture occurs in the book is in the first sentence where I say, this is not a book about cancel culture. That's very easy to do. And we can all do that late at night over a beer or, you know, there are other books and certainly many newspaper articles going on about that. I wanted to get behind the, understand the ideas behind that. And the ideas have trickled downstream into mainstream culture. I use an example um, early in the book, a quote from the New York Times shortly after President Biden was elected, um, in which it said something like, well, despite Vice President Kamala Harris's Indian roots, uh, the Biden administration may prove less forgiving to Modi's Hindu nationalism. I wish actually that were true. It hasn't been true. Um, but think about all the assumptions that are packed into that. First of all, the assumption is uh, anybody with Indian roots has to be an Indian nationalist. Okay. Secondly, the assumption is your ethnic background determines your political positions. And both of those things are completely false. And anybody who knows anything about the very sad state of Indian politics at the moment knows that the people who are most active in uh, protesting Modi's very violent Hindu nationalism are themselves Indians who are furious. Okay, so it's it's that sort of thing that you know people people 
you know, we all read the newspaper quickly. Maybe we read a couple every day. We want to, you know, not stop and think about every sentence, but every once in a while you realize you're taking in philosophical assumptions that you kind of roll over and you rush to turn the page or get back to doing the dishes or taking care of your kids or whatever it is that you're doing with your life. But that those are very deep assumptions that I think have infected what began as a genuine social justice movement. All right, very good. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like saying to be American, you have to support Trump. That would be ridiculous. Most of us... Well, there uh, are people who say that, yes. <laughs> But most Americans do not, even some conservative Republicans. Now, I've sort of viewed the woke agenda as anti-liberal. And in your book, you speak about socialism as if it were an extension of liberalism, like take the universalism of liberalism with its focus on individual, human, and civil rights, then add social and economic rights and a strong social safety net, and voila, you have socialism. But I've always associated socialism with Marxism, class warfare, terms like the proletariat, the bourgeoisie, class consciousness, and state control over the economy. And what you describe as socialism is something that I kind of see as social democracy, which is not strictly socialism. Instead, it's a fully functioning liberal democracy that actually represents the will of the people. So in other words, the people want public benefits, so they elect people who enact social policies that benefit the masses rather than the wealthy elite. In my view, liberalism is un under attack by leftist Marxist and right-wing authoritarians. I often say the left, the right wants to own the libs and the left wants to disown them. Um, so, And even the term neoliberal seems to me to refer to what used to be called libertarian. But in politics, it's sort of as propaganda, it's used by Marxist propaganda as a political label to attack and erase classical liberalism, um, which I feel I'm a classical liberal, and to erase it from the public discourse. So in other words, the only thing that exists is this neo or new liberalism and classical liberalism with its focus on the constitution, civil and human rights is actually neolism dressed up to support oppressive systems. So hence we have the attack on the constitution as a product of slaveholders, the assault on the Western world as an oppressive capitalist domination system, the denigration of human and civil rights as false and hypocritical schemes that are insufficient to overthrow oppressive systems and designed primarily to provide moral cover for exploitative colonial neoliberal practices, and the attack on universalism as merely capitalist or neoliberal rhetoric that separates and divides us by emphasizing individual rights over class, race, and gender identity. And in your book, you say that neoliberalism is liberalism without the humanism. Now, is liberalism really the foundation of socialism? And how does Marxist, Marxism and critiques of capitalism, neoliberalism, and systemic injustice fit into or are out of your understanding of socialism, universalism, and what you call deep solidarity. 
Well, you just asked a whole host of questions. And um, so I hope you'll give me a little time to answer them um, because your, uh, your remarks contain a lot of assumptions that aren't necessarily correct. You say you've always associated the word socialism with, uh, you know, class war, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I can call myself a social democrat. I'm on the, I'm a member of the major committee of the Social Democratic Party in, um, in Germany. I use the term socialist a bit to provoke people but also to try to remind them, particularly in the United States, that there was once a great socialist tradition in this country, and it was a perfectly legitimate thing to be until the Cold War. I'm not sure if uh, people know Albert Einstein was a proud socialist. He wrote a little very short essay, you can get it off the web, called Why Socialism? Uh, Helen Keller was a socialist. Paul Robeson, who you may not have heard of because he was really wiped out. He was at a certain point uh, called by W.B. Du Bois, the most famous American in the world. And if you count the whole world, he certainly was. Um, but Paul Robeson is one of my heroes. And um, anybody who doesn't know about him should, they're, they're, there's a good documentary on the web and a lot of things. Um, so he was a socialist who wrote a song called Ballad for Americans that was played in 1940 at both the Republican and the Communist Party conventions. And that was all uh, legal. That was a hymn to America, to American ideals, and to the promise uh, and as he um, ended saying the task that still remains. So we had a socialist movement in the United States. And, um, you know, I, I could call myself a social democrat and people would be less, uh, less nervous about it. But um, and I'm certainly not anti-democratic, but I prefer to try to remind people that we had a very different history in this country and that, you know, while everybody is now talking about, um, you know, historical reckoning, they're actually not talking about political reckoning. We are remembering the racism and that's mostly a step forward, but we are not remembering the political oppression that, you know, well, first of all, the political movements that got us the few labor rights that we have and take for granted social security, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we're also not remembering the repression. So that's one thing. Um, the second thing is you keep using the word benefits and social safety nets. Um, and that's what liberals do. And let me just say, I am completely happy to make as big a tent as I possibly can, certainly with anybody who holds liberal values. The difference between liberals and socialists, for me, is whether you consider things like labor rights, education, housing, um, health care, genuine sick leave, uh, vacations, you know, all of those things, whether you consider them to be benefits or safety nets or whether you consider them to be rights. And in 1948, the UN um, 
basically ratified a declaration of human rights after an awful lot of controversy between um, the different countries that were involved. You know, the Soviet Union didn't want to include a right to travel. Um, the, the United States didn't want to include a right to health. You know, all of, I mean, there's a different conception of rights here. But they did manage under Eleanor Roosevelt's uh, aegis, she was the chair of this committee, to um, to establish a declaration of human rights that nobody has yet fully fulfilled. But to be a leftist and a socialist is to think that those goals are something that are achievable and that ought to happen, okay? Um, socialist, socialist. Um, yeah, so I, I, I wager, wait, let me step back a second. I am happy to make as big a tent as I possibly can or to join as big a tent as I possibly can because there was another word that you didn't use you described um I mean, and I'm glad you're commemorating January 6th you described with the word authoritarianism the attempt to violently overthrow a government and become dictator uh for life in my book that's fascism okay and fascism is rising all over the world I wish it weren't um, unfortunately, the United States is still uh, at, in some sense, an exemplary nation because although the trends were rising in other parts of the world, the minute the American president began behaving the way the last holder of that office behaved, um, you know, people from Britain to Hungary, Hungary was already happening. Um, you know, to Brazil with Bolsonaro, to India with Modi, to Russia with Putin, began to say, well, hell, if the American president can do that, we can too. There's a, the new government of Israel actually has members in it who are perfectly happy to call themselves fascists, okay? So I think we need to call the dangers by their name. Um, we have a threat of fascism. Um, and it's international. And if all of us, you know, on this left liberal side of things, don't, um, you know, pool our forces, we are going to be faced with what Germany was faced with in 1933. That is, um, the Nazis got into power by democratic elections, but they didn't have a majority. Um, the reason they got into power is that the two left-wing parties, large left-wing parties, the Social Democrats and the Communists, were so uh, at war with each other that they couldn't band together and form a majority. And we really don't want that to happen again. But as the last point is, as far as you said, well, I assume that socialism means, you know, all these terrible things. <laughs> um, once again, before Stalin, and even in some places after Stalin, I mean, in, in the former Yugoslavia, and in some places it was, you had a, you know, non-Stalinist country, there were varieties of socialism. There were all kinds of things, you know, different positions on offer. Um, I'm not a Marxist because I don't believe in class reductionism any more than I believe in uh, race reductionism, okay, um, but, or gender reductionism, okay, um, so, you know, I have certain differences with um, Marxism, but there were certainly, um, you know, great 
socialist theorists and activists, um, you know, who I take uh, inspiration from. So um, you, you were talking about propaganda before, and I think, uh, as a Russian friend of mine once said when I was talking to him about the, the um, you know, sort of assumptions at, you know, about American history in the Cold War, he said, gee, I guess the difference between the United States and the former Soviet Union is that people in the former Soviet Union knew they were hearing propaganda. And I said, that's right. Americans don't. They're getting a very one-sided view of the world. And I've got to say, I was very grateful. Um, gosh, it's now a long time ago, almost 40 years. But I really had to go abroad and immerse myself in a different um, culture and a different set of assumptions and political frameworks to realize you know, that it's quite partial. It's, or we're we're given a very partial view of the world. Of course, if people like Ron DeSantis have their way, it'll be even more partial. Wow, look at this. You guys got, hi, how are you guys? Good to see you. So what do you got? Go right over here? Okay. Is there anything DeSantis could do to win over your support? No. We have Trump at or around 60%, and we have DeSantis below 20. Ron DeSantis has yet to be able to take a Trump voter away from Trump. Make America great again. DeSantis is Trump light. And honestly, we have businesses that have been locked We're down. We're going to put made in China. And why go light when you can get the real guy? Based on polls, he's not doing okay with anything. Meatball, uh, sorry, uh, DeSantis. <laughs> DeSantis would apparently tell Dates he likes Thai food, but pronounced it thigh. It smells really good, I'll tell you that. And if they corrected him, he would make up an excuse and leave because, quote, he didn't want a girlfriend who corrected him. Ron DeSantis does not like to make eye contact. He does not like human beings. This is a guy who, who notoriously is short with people. How would they know me? Okay, think about that. I'm sick of the judgment, the, the judgmental stuff. He's unpleasant. One aware, fine, but this is a, this is ridiculous. The darkness and the weirdness altogether is going to make him, I think, very off-putting. You know, my mom, or my my wife. What's with the go-go boot? Have you ever eaten a chocolate pudding with three fingers? Until, of course, Donald Trump tears his liver out and eats it live on stage. I'll show you falling behind the. I'm not I'm not a candidate so we'll see if uh, if and when that changes then mr. Trump said you're fired I love that part